Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you have given us your word by your Spirit. And Father, we thank you that your word will last, though heaven and earth will pass away. And we pray now that as we consider this your word, uh, that your Spirit who inspired it to be written uh, would so work in our hearts, uh, that we would understand it and believe it and obey it and take to heart uh, the warnings and encouragements that we see here. We pray that you give us hearts uh, that uh, love you, uh, that are contrite, that tremble at your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of us are optimists and some of us are pessimists. Optimists, they say, are people who invented aeroplanes. And pessimists are people who invented parachutes. But whether we are optimists or pessimists, that can affect the way we look at the church. Optimists often just see the good things. Pessimists often just see the bad things. But we actually need to see both in light of God's providence and his plan. As we've seen over the past uh, few weeks, as we've gone through the book of Acts, the early church had its share of joys and problems. There were good things, really, really good things. The gospel was going out rapidly. Many people were becoming disciples of Jesus. Word of God was spreading. And every time the word went out, there was also problems, also dangers. Remember the problems we've seen? Harassment from authorities, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, the issue with the Greek and Hebrew widows, then the great persecution that followed the, the martyrdom of Stephen. If we only looked on the good side, we could very easily idealize the early church and say, Ah, oh, if only we were just like that. If you look on the problem side, you can get very discouraged and think, Oh, it's a terrible, how hard it would have been. But if you look on both sides, then you see how God in his providence was using all these things to bring about his purposes. God has a plan. And his plan is to bring the gospel to the nations. And he is bringing his plan to completion. Well today we are looking at another exciting milestone in the fulfillment of God's plans. And with that we see another problem, uh, another threat to the church, another danger. But as usual in Acts, those things are happening together. The gospel was going out to a new frontier, God was fulfilling his purposes, and there was a serious threat to the church at the same time. Well, let's look at the milestone first. You may recall from last week that the church was facing great persecution. The Jerusalem church, the center for gospel activity thus far, had been scattered. The only ones left were the apostles themselves. And the rest of the people had to run off because of persecution. And they spread, chapter 8, verse 1, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Which itself wasn't a bad thing. Because the one thing that they did when they dispersed in these different directions was take the gospel with them. The fact they were persecuted and dispersed didn't mean they, they stopped telling people about the gospel. In fact, Luke tells us in verse 4 that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. 
And so lots of people in Judea and Samaria got to hear the message of Jesus. You see there uh, on the map, you've got Jerusalem in the center there. And then they get scattered. Where do they go? They go up to Samaria, down to Judea. Remember what Jesus said back in chapter 1 verse 8 when the disciples asked him when is the time for the restoration of Israel? He said, times? I'm not going to talk to you about times. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Can you click the next slide? First of all. Thanks. Yeah. Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Those three steps. Now the gospel had gone out in Jerusalem. Many had heard it. Many had accepted it and trusted in Jesus as the king. But many too had rejected it. And made life difficult for those who believed. And so now with the persecution, the gospel goes through Judea and Samaria as well. And so here is the transition point for that second stage in the, in the God's plan for world mission. See, the master plan of Jesus was being fulfilled. But this is not just geography. Uh, there is great theological significance to this geography. Because think back with me to the history of Israel. Remember that God, in an act of judgment, divided the nation nearly a thousand years before that, before, beforehand, uh, after the reign of Solomon. The northern kingdom kept the name Israel. The southern kingdom took the name Judah, named after the dominant tribe of the south. And that's the way both of them were until the exile. Each of them went their own directions. But God, in the Old Testament, had promised that the day would come when He would bring His people together. We saw one of those promises just now, isn't it? In Ezekiel 37. There will be His undivided people. And He would be their God. They would live under one king, David, the Davidic Messiah, the Christ. They would live in God's presence, under His blessing and rule forever. Now, Jesus, the son of David, the heir of all the promises to David, had come. He was the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one. By his death and resurrection, he had brought in the kingdom. And many in Jerusalem had accepted him as king. And so the next stage of the restoration of Israel is the Messiah's rule to extend beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Judea being the place where, being the old Judah. Samaria being the old Israel. You see, so people from both the old Israel, the southern kingdom, and the old Judah, the northern kingdom, were going to bow the knee before Jesus and become part of his kingdom. That's how reunification was going to take place. It wasn't political, it was spiritual. The remnant, the true believers, the true Israelites from both north and south would put their faith in King Jesus. And they will be God's renewed restored people the kingdom will be restored to Israel and from there it will go out to the ends of the earth 
Now, the gospel going out to, throughout Judea was not so remarkable because like Jerusalem, that's still part of the southern kingdom. Jerusalem was the capital of that. But when it goes to Samaria, well, that's a bit different. Remember, Samaritans were different. Jews hated the Samaritans. They were unfaithful to the pure Jewish religion. They worshipped God on Mount Gerazim instead of the temple. They rejected the prophets. They only kept the first five books of the, of the Old Testament. It was wrong. Their religion, like their race, was mixed. Nothing wrong with mixed race, by the way. But the gospel reaches them. In chapter 8, verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. That is, he proclaimed to them who is the Christ. Who is the, that the Christ means the Messiah, the King. So Philip was telling the Samaritans that, that Jesus was God's promised King. He was the one the Old Testament said would rule over the United Kingdoms of Israel and Judah. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And how did the Samaritans respond? Verse 6. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many of those who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. They paid attention to Philip. They listened to him. They saw the signs that he was doing. Amazing miracles, signs that accompany the coming of the Messiah. Many, many people released from demonic bondage. Many paralyzed and lame people healed all over the city. And many believed. And so, verse 8, there was much joy in that city. Samaria had turned to her true king. The remnant of Israel was once again coming under the Davidic ruler. People from Judah and Israel, both under one head. Kingdom was being restored. Now one of the people who professed faith in Jesus was formerly a miracle worker himself. And herein lies the grave danger. Simon the Magician is introduced for us in verse 9. It says, But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was someone great. So Simon was this magic man in Samaria. We're not told whether his magic was from trickery or from evil powers, but we know it wasn't from God. For he was claiming to be someone great. Yet so impressed had the people in Samaria been with him that they considered him to be the power of God. Verses 10 to 11. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So he was an amazing magician. But now, they were paying attention to Philip. And unlike Philip, sorry, unlike Simon, Philip did not use magic to glorify himself. He did not use the miracles and the signs that he was doing to, to puff himself up. 
His purpose was to proclaim the gospel. And the people of Samaria believed him as he proclaimed it. Verse 12, But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now Samaria is turned to Christ. And Simon, he is smart enough to realize that this is a real thing. The magic he did, there was no, no, no competition for the miracles that Philip was doing. They were a different class altogether. Even he was astounded by what was going on. The amazing magician became the amazed magician. And some people say, if you can't beat them, join them. And that's exactly what Simon did. Verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Simon was really impressed with the miracles that he was seeing. But he would be even more amazed with what he would see next. In order to understand what happens next, you must remember that the turning of the Samaritans to Christ was a major, major turning point for the Gospel. Up to this point, the Gospel had only gone out to the Jews, people from Judah. I remember Jesus said, You see power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, the witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And who had he said that to? Let's wait for that, eh? Think about who he said it to. Who did he say it to? The apostles. Right. So the apostles were witnesses of Jesus in all three stages of the gospel going out. Remember back to Matthew. Uh, Jesus had given Peter the keys of the kingdom to open the doors of the kingdom. Peter had used his keys by proclaiming the gospel at Pentecost to the Jews, opening the way for the Jews to come in. Later on in the book of Acts, he would do the same thing for the Gentiles. He proclaimed the gospel to Cornelius and Cornelius and his household would be the first ones in. Open the doors for them. But here, when the Samaritans were starting to enter the kingdom, the apostles were nowhere in sight. It was Philip, one of the seven men who were appointed by them to help with administration in the Jerusalem church. He was the one who brought the gospel to Samaria. The apostles, they were back in Jerusalem. There's a problem. Something needed to be done. Verse 14. Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So Peter and John, two of the leading apostles, come down from Samaria. Sorry, come down to Samaria. And the preaching of the word of God, because you see, you have to have apostolic backing for the gospel word. This is a special event. Right? It's not that they come running down from Jerusalem every time the gospel goes to a new place. Right? They, but they need to be there for the big turning points. Jerusalem, Samaria, Gentiles. 
So they come down from Jerusalem, and when they come, they discover that the Holy Spirit had not fallen on the Samaritans in the same way as he had fallen upon them at Pentecost. Now, they weren't expecting him to come in the same way as Pentecost every time someone became a believer back in Jerusalem. That didn't happen. But at Pentecost, where all the people were Jews, the coming of the Spirit was a sign that God was restoring his people, creating his new people. And if the Samaritans were going to be part of the new people of God, then perhaps they would have a Pentecostal experience too. Perhaps the Spirit would fall upon them too, just as he had fallen on the Jewish Christians at the beginning. But this had not happened. There was nothing wrong with the gospel that Philip preached. Nothing wrong with the baptism he baptized with. Nothing wrong about the signs and the miracles that he was doing. And yet God had not poured out his Spirit on the Samaritan Christians in the same way as he poured him out on the Jewish Christians at Pentecost was waiting for the arrival of the apostles. After all, Jesus had said that the apostles, apostles would be his witnesses at each step. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Because the apostles, they were his special appointed authorized representatives. In a way that the men that they further appointed, like, like Philip, were not. And so the apostles, Peter, John, came down to the Samaritans. And verse 18 says, verse 15 actually, they came down and they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now the Bible doesn't tell us what this looked like, but I think we can probably surmise it was very much like Pentecost in Jerusalem. I think that would be fair to think that. People praising God in different foreign languages, speaking the words of God in tongues they've never learned, miraculously preaching the gospel in words they, they've never known, so that the Samaritan Christians and the Jewish Christians were united. United by the gospel they received, united in the spirit they received. United under the authority of the apostles whom they received. So in Samaria, just as in Jerusalem, the churches would look to the apostles of Jesus Christ. Not to anyone else. Not even those appointed by them by the laying on of hands. Like Philip. Now, guess who was watching while all this was going on? That's right, it was Simon, isn't it? If Simon was impressed with Philip, imagine how more impressed he would have been with the apostles. They prayed and laid their hands on people, and when they laid their hands on people, the Spirit was given. Wow! He wanted to have a part in that too. But how could he get it? Well, Simon knew how he operated when he was a magician. He was a career magician. Magic was his business. And you assume that this spirit was the apostolic business as well. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands 
may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, when we first read this, we kind of like imagine this was a really obvious and stupid blunder. You know? Like he got no idea what he was doing. You know, here, apostles here, here's a hundred bucks here, let me know what you can do. Huh? Let's think about it more. Simon the magician is no fool. Must not underestimate him. The whole city of Samaria was under his spell, if you like. He knew how to play the game. He was good. And so, because he was good, by now he, he would have been very rich. Astounding all the Samaritans with his miracles. And Simon also knew that this new thing, this, this gospel of the kingdom, a movement that he was now a part of, would have taken away his business. People aren't astounded with him anymore. His run was over. Now, what would a good businessman do in that situation? You can, or if you can, you try and take over the competition, don't you? You buy it out. No antitrust laws in Samaria to prevent that. So in order to survive, Simon had to be the Samaritan leader of the movement. If he was, then he could continue to do his business among the Samaritans. It would be business as usual. No more the shop has changed. Instead of using magic, he'll be using the power of the spirit. But essentially, he'll still be the great one. The power of God called great. This is do or die for Simon. If he didn't become the leader, he'd be out of business. Probably very lucrative business. But how could he become the leader? Well, the apostles who came from Jerusalem, they were obviously the leaders of the Christian movement. They were the men with authority. They had more authority than Philip because the Holy Spirit came on whoever they prayed for. If only Simon could inherit this apostolic authority. If only he could have the ability of imparting the Spirit on those to whom he, for whom he prayed. If only he could have that gift, that power. If only he could be like the apostles and he could be the leader of the Samaritan church, imparting the Spirit on those he willed. Apostolic succession would happen. Their authority would be passed down to him. But he'd have to be able to persuade them to give him this power. And the only thing that he had, and they didn't, was money. Now remember, Simon is no fool. He would not have offered the apostles a small amount of money. It would have been worth a lot to him to get back his monopoly on the lucrative, miraculous scene in Samaria. And offering a small amount would have certainly meant rejection. He was a willing buyer. The apostles would have been unwilling sellers. So he would have to offer them a huge sum if this was going to work. Something that would tempt them. Something that they would find hard to refuse. Something large enough to make them actually consider if it was like an astoundingly, mind-blowingly big amount, then maybe they would consider his proposal. After all, there would have been many believing widows 
still needing help all around Judea and Samaria, wouldn't they? Most of the Christians in Jerusalem, well, they're either scattered or in prison now. No one, no, no one is selling fields and giving proceeds to the church now. Could this have been God's provision for his people? Well, we don't know to what extent the apostles were tempted by Simon's offer, but we do know they rejected it in no uncertain terms. Because Christian ministry is not business. You cannot buy the gift of God. You cannot bribe an apostle of Jesus. And you cannot inherit the authority of an apostle no matter how much you give. And so Peter's response was firm. He scolded Simon in no uncertain terms. Verse 20. May your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. He's saying, go to hell, you and your money. That's what he's saying. He was saying that Simon was heading for hell. He was on his way to destruction. His attitude to the spirit and to ministry showed that he hadn't really been converted. He was impressed with the miracles. He believed intellectually. He was baptized externally. But his heart was still the same. It was not straight. It was not upright. He was a crook. He was still corrupt. He was still a magician at heart. And he wanted to be the leader of the Samaritan church. Paul says to him, uh, Peter says to him in verse 21, You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Or, or the other way of translating that word is, In this world. For your heart is not right before God. He said, Simon, you are not in fellowship with us. You don't have a share in the gospel of Christ. Your heart's not right before God. And Peter calls him to repent. Verse 22. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. So if you repent, if you pray, then, then maybe God will forgive you. Maybe he'll give you a new heart and real faith. Maybe he'll forgive your evil intentions and give you a new start. But you can't presume on him. You don't belong to him. Cry out to him and ask him for mercy. Because, verse 23, I see that you are in the call of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. The gall of bitterness could just be an idiom that means someone who's very, very envious or resentful, very, very jealous. Like gall is that bitter stuff that, the, that, the, uh, that is stored in the gallbladder, produced by the liver. If this is so, then, then Peter is saying that the, the reason... No, it's not, is it? Never mind. That the, that Peter is saying the reason that Simon was doing what he was doing was, was, was bitter envy. He wanted to be like the apostles and he was jealous of them. On the other hand, there's a verse in the Greek translation of the Old Testament where we find those Greek words for bitterness and gall together. It's in Deuteronomy 29, verse 18. And Moses is warning the people of Israel against idolatry. He says, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve these gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root growing up in gall and bitterness. See the heart, gall, bitterness. Gall and bitterness are the states of the heart where idolatry is found. The bitterness that comes from doing 
among God's people but serving other gods. And if this is what Peter was thinking of, then he's still talking about Simon's heart. His heart was turned from God to to the gods of the nations, to idols. He looked like a believer, but actually he was an idolater. He was like the people of the Old Testament that that, uh, Israel was to be aware of. And the church was to be aware of in the new. Someone, a root growing up in burn and bitterness. The other way Peter describes Simon here as being being in the bond of iniquity. Or better, the bond of unrighteousness. Nothing to do with 007 movies. A bond is something that binds people together. If you're in a bond of unrighteousness, then you're bound together with others in unrighteousness. The thing that you have in common, the thing that holds you together is unrighteousness. That's the opposite of true Christian fellowship, isn't it? Where, where the thing that bonds you together is Christ. Simon was a root of bitter gall. Someone who lived as part of God's people, but was really idolatrous in heart. And his true fellowship was with those in darkness. Not with the people of God. Now Simon's response to this is telling. He doesn't worry about repentance. He's not concerned to pray like Peter advises him to. He's not going to examine himself to see if what Peter is saying is true. He's not concerned that he could have fallen into idolatry or that his true fellowship was with the lost. What he wants to do is avoid the consequences of his actions. Because he knows, he knows that the gospel is right. He knows it in his head. But he doesn't want to come to God with a contrite heart. And he says in verse 24, he says to us, Peter, he says, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. It's pretty pathetic, isn't it? He knows it's true, but he won't ask God for forgiveness. He won't humble himself before God. He won't ask God to change his heart. He just wants Peter to pray that he will not have to face the consequences of what he's done. Well, what happened to Simon after this? The Bible doesn't tell us. Uh, the early church fathers say that his followers became some of the major heretics that threatened the church. And if this is right, then he just confirms what Peter says. This guy pretends to be a believer, but he's not. Friends, imagine what would have happened if the apostles had taken Simon's money and if they were able to give him what he wanted. Simon, the magician, leader of the Samaritan church. They would have looked at him and not the apostles for their direction. Corruption would have been the order of the day. The church would have been there to serve his self-seeking. But being powerful and impressive would be more important than the truth. Heresy would have flourished. And Jesus would not have been Lord of the Samaritan church. But the apostles thankfully didn't give 
into this temptation. They know that they've been sent by the risen Jesus with a unique role to play and they won't hand it over for money. They won't let corruption and self-seeking infect the church. They will not let the church of God be hijacked by a man who doesn't have a heart for God. Instead, what do they do? They continue the gospel work that Philip had started. Verse 25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So they go back to Jerusalem, preaching all the way to the various villages of Samaria. So the Samaritan church, the Samaritan church, was an apostolic church. Founded on the teachings of the apostles as representatives of Jesus. United by the Spirit with the church in Jerusalem. And Jesus was the king of the kingdom, which now extended from across the old boundaries of Israel and Judah. And God's true people, Jews and Samaritans, who accepted the Messiah, were united under him once more. So friends, what are the lessons that we can learn from this passage? Well, the first thing I think we can learn here is that God is concerned. He is determined that his church is apostolic. Remember, think about this Pentecost, this Samaritan Pentecost again. It's a unique event. It's unique for the Samaritan believers, just as the original Pentecost was unique for the Jewish believers. Because God was bringing the two halves of his ancient people together. Which is why we have that extraordinary situation of the Holy Spirit falling on people just like he did at Pentecost. But, God does an extraordinary thing by not causing the Spirit to fall on them straight away when they believe. That's, that's amazing. He actually waits for the coming of the apostles. He wanted to make sure that the Samaritan church had to come under apostolic authority. The apostles were the link between what happened at Pentecost and what was happening here. They were the personal ambassadors of Jesus, authorized by him, so such that, that their words were his words. And so important was it that the apostles were present, that the pouring out of the Spirit on Samaritan believers were, was even delayed so that they could be there. Because God wants all his people to come under the apostles. Not just the Jewish ones, the Samaritan ones as well. They are the representatives of Jesus. Jesus has given them his authority. So coming under apostolic authority means coming under Jesus. And coming under Jesus means coming under his kingship. Coming under his kingship means being ruled by his word. And the apostles, they were the authorized messengers of Jesus. They were the ones who bring his word to the world. So God's delay in pouring out his spirit surprising as it is is vital so that Samaritan church is truly apostolic and Jesus is truly the king of Israel now in relation to that we need to avoid at least two common misunderstandings of this passage first of all some people have taken this to mean that there should be a two stage experience of becoming a Christian for everyone. That is, put your faith in Christ first, 
And then someone else has to come later and pray over you for the Spirit to fall upon you. The Spirit will fall upon people this way if they are prayed for. Always. In fact, something is missing in your Christian life and experience if you haven't had this happen to you. You are a second class Christian, like the Samaritans who were being baptized, but upon whom the Spirit had not yet come. But that misses the point, doesn't it? Of the uniqueness of this situation. The Pentecost experience was repeated for Samaritans because the gospel was crossing a major theological barrier and now going out to them to show that they too are part of the kingdom of God. That's not happening for us. There's no reason why God would do this in the same way for us. That's not to say he can't do extraordinary things today. Of course he can. I'm sure he does. But let's be careful of making this exception into the rule. Of saying, what was a one-off experience then is something that every Christian has to experience now. The other mistake that is sometimes made is by linking this passage with confirmation. Some people say, the Spirit comes upon people when the bishop lays his hands on them and prays for them. Again, this misses the point of the passage, doesn't it? It makes the same mistake of turning the exception into the rule. And those who argue for it say, well, bishops get the power to impart the Spirit like the apostles when they become bishops and other bishops put their hands on them and they receive the power to do it, you see, when they were made bishop. But when you think about it, that's, that's quite preposterous, isn't it? That would give bishops the same kind of power as Simon wanted. And there's no evidence that anyone in the Bible had that except the apostles. Not even Philip, one of the seven upon whom's head the apostles themselves had laid their hands. Furthermore, the apostles didn't do anything that looks like confirmation. Yes, they were there at the coming of the Spirit on the Jewish believers at Pentecost. The first American believers here, the Gentile believers later. But, but if the coming of the Spirit is confirmation, then when you get to Cornelius in chapter 10, and the Spirit falls on him when Peter's still talking, have not got around to praying for him with a laying his hands on him. In fact, the Spirit falls on Cornelius before he's even baptized. So you can say the Spirit falling on him. If you say the Spirit falling on him is confirmation, then, well, you just said he was confirmed before he was baptized. And anyway, the apostles only needed to be there for those special events. And after that, they didn't have to pray for everyone who became a Christian to, to receive the Spirit. They didn't spend their days running around the Mediterranean behind evangelists conducting confirmations. But to try and read confirmation back into Acts chapter 8, as some people do, is, is simply trying to read later church tradition into a passage which, which simply isn't there. Now, don't get me wrong. I think confirmation is a useful thing if you're baptized as a baby. Because if you're baptized as a baby, then you need the chance to make the promises for yourselves that was made for your baptism. But people who are baptized as babies get to confirm the decision that was made on their behalf when they were too young to make it themselves. That's got to be a good thing. But it does not impart the Spirit. And bishops are not apostles. God is concerned that his church is apostolic. The apostles of Jesus are the apostles for the whole church, 
Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles. And what makes a church apostolic today is not a connection with the bishop. You can have heretical bishops. And we have heretical bishops, especially in the West. What makes a church apostolic today is faithfulness to the teachings of the apostles, which you find in the New Testament. We still look to those same apostles. An apostolic church is a biblical church. So we must be firmly based on the teachings of the apostles. God has determined that his church would be apostolic. The second thing we learn from this passage is a warning against false faith. Simon believed. Says so in verse 13. He believed. But it was not true faith. Simon did not repent and turn from his magic of the past. Instead, he contrived to continue what he did before under a, under a different guise. He tried to manipulate the Holy Spirit just as he had practiced his art. His repentance was not genuine. And neither was his faith. Simon believed in the miracles. He was amazed by them. He knew they were the real thing. But his faith, it seems, was only in the miracles instead of the one the miracles was pointing to. His experience of the Christian life following Peter was constant amazement at the supernatural, but, but not a humble confession of sin and trust in Jesus as Savior and King. Friends, we need to beware of superficial faith. We need to beware of letting our faith rest on signs rather than reality. Whatever the signs are that point to Jesus, no matter how good they are. See, signs and wonders were there to point to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. But just being amazed by the miracles is not enough. It's not a faith that saves. And the same goes for all the other pointers to Jesus. The resurrection shows for certain that Jesus is Lord. But just being convinced by evidence, no matter how good the apologetic evidence is, is, is not enough. It's not a faith that saves. The community of God's people acting in love is meant to be a light that draws people to the gospel. But just being attracted by the love of God's people, that's not enough. That's not a faith that saves. The preaching of God's word is meant to be the, the, the means by which people hear the message, but, but just being impressed by preaching is not enough. It's not a faith that saves either. A true faith, the faith that only the Holy Spirit can give, is a faith that goes beyond the signs to the reality. A faith that knows our hearts are not right, repents of our wickedness, and prays to God for forgiveness. A faith that genuinely repents, and keeps on going back to the cross, where Jesus died to take our sins away. A faith that trusts in Him, His death in our place, for forgiveness and life. And then expresses itself in progressively changed life. Not perfect life, but progressively changed life. That is a real saving faith. All those other things are useful signs to try and point you there. But that's the reality to which we must come. Not everyone who believes, truly believes. Let's make sure that we are people who truly have faith in Jesus.
The third thing we see here is a warning against the dangers of corruption and wickedness. So we've just seen that not everyone who believes is a true believer. Not everyone who is baptized is a disciple of Jesus. Not everyone who does impressive miracles does so by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be aware and we need to beware of people like Simon. There will be people who try to use church and ministry for personal gain. And some of them will use money to do so. But money does not buy the gift of God. And money should not buy the people of God. We must never let money dictate the direction or the leadership of the church of God. Finally, we are reminded that God is fulfilling his plans. See, Jesus has died on the cross to take our sins away. He has risen again the Son of his Lord and King of all. He has poured out his Spirit upon his church that we might take his message out. And God's plan now is for this message about Jesus to, to spread to the ends of the earth. So that people all over the world come to him for forgiveness and receive him as their king and enter his kingdom. Today we've seen the next step of God fulfilling his plan as the kingdom was extended to the Samaritans. And yet always as the kingdom advances, there is a threat. Persecution from outside, sin from within, temptation from people who look like they're in but, but actually out. But God is sovereign. He preserves his church and the gospel continues to advance. And friends, there may be times when, when we are like the pessimists. We're discouraged. We look at the state of the church and we see problems. We see threats, we see inadequacies, we see corruption, we see people in various positions of leadership where they should never be. And we can easily get down. But friends, look up and see Jesus. He rules. Yes, there will be threats, but there will also be advances. Yes, there will be false brothers, but there will be true ones as well. Yes, there will be Simons, but there will also be Philips. And in the end, the gospel of Jesus will triumph. And in the end, the ends of the earth will see the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have given your son to die for us on the cross. Thank you that you have raised him to life again, that he is indeed the Lord, the King of all. We thank you for the way that his kingdom is increasing. It went out from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria. Now it's going out to the ends of the earth. Thank you for the way the gospel has come to us. So that we have now been drawn in, become part of your new people. Thank you for the way the gospel has gone in North Korea. That struggling tiny church there.
drawn in, become part of your people. Father, we, we know that this is your plan and that nothing will thwart that. And Lord, we pray that you will find us to be faithful in our part in, in all this. Father, we pray that each one of us here would, would be true believers, that we would have a genuine work of the Spirit in our lives, such that we do know Jesus as Lord. And we do have hearts that are soft and repentant and contrite before you. Hearts that know that we aren't great, not trying to be great, but, but keep throwing ourselves at your mercy and knowing that you love us and knowing that by the cross. And Father, we pray that you'll guard us from the dangers of corruption and wickedness. Father, keep us from falling in those ways. We pray that the leaders of your people would not see, would not let their position